Hey, Cornwall Church, welcome uh, to another week in our summer series where we've been looking at the life of Moses and the lessons from that. This is week 10, I believe, in this series. We've got a few more to go. Excited about that. Really grateful for the last couple of weeks. Pastor Kip uh, preached on snakes a couple of weeks ago. If you didn't catch that one, go back and, and review that one. And then last weekend, Pastor Brian gave us a 10-point sermon uh, on leadership commandments or leadership principles from Moses' life. And he made a statement that was a bit of a jab towards me. He said, 10, 10 points, you might be thinking, this is like going to be a Pastor Bob Link sermon, ouch. Uh, because he always gives me a bad time because his sermons always stay under 40 minutes. However, just for making sure that the record is straight, at the end of his sermon, this is what was on the timer 4311, Pastor Brian, 4311. So you ex went over the 40 minute mark. So that little shot at me, uh, I don't know that that was warranted. But anyway, uh, it's good to have you here with us. And I will say this about Pastor Brian's sermon. He referenced in the second point of his 10 point sermon, he referenced a, a scripture out of Numbers chapter 12. And it's a scripture that I've referenced as well. It's a parenthetical footnote put into the, into the book of Numbers, most likely a postscript, uh, highly likely a postscript. Probably Joshua put it in because if Moses wrote it, it's kind of a, a self-refuting statement. And the context is this. Moses had an older sister and an older brother, like me. And they were picking on him, like my siblings did to me often. But what's interesting is, as they're kind of picking on Moses, it starts off really as an ethnic slur about one of his wives, and then it becomes kind of this defamation of character. Now, what's amazing about Moses is that he doesn't complain. He doesn't say, Miriam and Aaron are picking on me. Did you hear what they said? He doesn't say any of that. It's God who has Moses' back. God comes, out. in fact, Moses... Moses actually asked God to kind of back down on how harsh he is. It's kind of like, you know, if, if you had siblings in the back seat and your dad looking, you know, stop the car and, you know, that kind of thing. But here's the parenthetical footnote in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. It says this. Now, Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. That Moses has something about him that is unbelievably humble. Now, it's true that there are some things that he had done in his life that could cause him to be humble. But I think the greatest factor is that he had seen God. He had been in his presence. He had, he had been at the burning bush. And when you get a glimpse of the holiness and the righteousness and the awesome glory of God, it's very humbling. I mean, when Isaiah was in the throne room, he says, woe to me, I, I'm coming undone, I am ruined. One time when Peter saw Jesus for who he was, he falls down and he says, away from me, I'm a sinful man. But another thing about the humility of Moses, it's that he was always thinking of others. And we're gonna see that today. Again, in Pastor Brian's second point last week, he referenced Philippians chapter two and also a quote from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said, humility is not thinking less about yourself, it's thinking about yourself less. It's thinking about others. Philippians two, consider others more important than yourself. So in essence, my sermon is an expansion of Pastor Brian's second point, and it may not go quite as long as Pastor Brian did, but we're going to look at that, and we're going to see the humility of Moses today. We're going to primarily be in Exodus chapter 32, and a little bit in chapter 33. We'll get there in a minute. Now, now I'm going to do my best, Pastor Kip. It was early in World War II. 
the Germans had overtaken France. There were 350,000 troops from France and from Britain that were stuck in Dunkirk. They couldn't get across the English Channel to, to the cliffs of Dover. But over the course of just about a week, there were people in private vessels that came and brought these troops back over into England. Winston Churchill knew that Adolf Hitler would be advancing on the Britons. And so two weeks later, he gives this speech, not only to rally the troops, but to rally the nation. And at the end of that speech, he gave these famous words. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. This was their finest hour. Almost uh, 50 and a half years ago, in April of 1970, Apollo 13 had an explosion in space and they weren't sure if they were gonna be able to get these astronauts back to Earth. And maybe you saw the movie and a quote out of that movie on their way back is this, where it says, this could be the worst disaster NASA has ever experienced. With all due respect, sir, Kranz intervenes, I believe this is going to be our finest hour. What is it about that phrase, our finest hour? In both situations, there's this crisis, there's this pressure that's mounting, there's this uncertain outcome of how this is gonna be. They're against all odds. And in the midst of that kind of a circumstance, they show incredible strength and fortitude and, and ingenuity and courage and character. James uh, uh, Boyce Montgomery, um, he said that what we're going to look at today could have been Moses' finest hour. Because we see in this, this scene that there is pressure, there's a crisis, there's uncertainty of how this is going to play out. And in the midst of it, Moses exhibits strength, fortitude, ingenuity, courage, character, and humility. Incredible humility. The scene that we're going to look at is one of the most famous scenes out of the Exodus. And if you were like me growing up and, and watching the Ten Commandments every year, that, that incredible movie, this was the scene that always disturbed me and bothered me the most. It's a very familiar scene for some of you, and I hope that its familiarity won't cause you to check out because I think there may be some things that you discover today that possibly you've never seen before that will show how this was Moses' finest hour. We will get to that in Exodus 32. Let me kind of set the backdrop and, the, and, and the, uh, the setting for this. If we rewind a little bit, four weeks ago, we talked about the Ten Commandments. And when God gives these Ten Commandments to Moses, he starts off reminding them about his relationship with them in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. And it says this, I am the Lord, Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now this phrase, if you read through Exodus and, and the rest of the Pentateuch, this phrase comes up again and again and again. It's like God says, I need you to remember this. Don't forget this. I want you to know who you are. I want you to know who I am. I want you to know that I rescued you. I'm the one that brought you out. It wasn't Moses. It wasn't you. It wasn't Pharaoh. It was me. And he says this to them over and over again. This is my commitment. I've already drawn you out. I've, I've brought you out like the strength of eagle's wings. And then he goes into the Ten Commandments, which we looked at, as I said, four weeks ago. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. 20 verses later, 
he reiterates this command and he gives some clarity, some specificity. He says, in case there's any kind of confusion about this, in verse 23, he says, do not make any gods to be alongside me. Not just in place of me. Don't bring them alongside me and do not make for yourselves gods of silver or gods of gold. Don't have Yahweh and. You know, I think in our world today, of spirituality, and very often in Christian spirituality, we take kind of a cafeteria plan. A lot of people say, well, yeah, of course, I, I've got some stuff from Jesus I really like, and, but there's some quotes from Buddha that are really kind of cool, and, and I've got some, some self-help stuff I want to mix in with that and, and some Oprah, and, and I've got some New Age mysticism because I like some of that kind of smells and bells and whistles and all that kind of stuff, and I put this stuff together, and God comes along and says, listen, when it comes to worshiping, don't put any other gods alongside me. Hold on to those things because it will come to play in this story that we're going to look at today. So this all happens. Moses writes all this stuff down and he takes it to the people. And we read this. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. The book. Remember, the tablets, the stone tablets, he doesn't have those yet. That hasn't happened yet. He's got a book, papyrus. Egypt had been using papyrus since 3000 BC, 1500 years they'd been using papyrus. This is probably a book made of papyrus. And it's the book of the covenant. There's that relationship. So he reads it to them and the people respond and it says this. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. What's not to like? It's all good. They're all in. God has brought them out. Here's the, the, the covenant. They're saying we're all about this. Fantastic. At this point, God says, Moses, I want you to come back up onto the mountain because now we're going to get into something you know, like these stones. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and stay here and I will give you the tablets of stone. Now we're going to get into the tablets of stone with the law and the commands I have written for their instruction. So Moses takes Joshua, Joshua, son of Nun, which is fun because it sounds like he doesn't have parents, but it's spelled N-U-N, which nuns shouldn't have kids, but it's really his dad's name was Nun. So he takes Joshua, son of Nun, with him. He leaves Aaron and her in charge. Aaron is his older brother. Some believe, he can't prove this biblically, but some believe that her was actually his brother-in-law, Miriam's husband. Doesn't matter. But he leaves them in charge, and so they go up on the mountain. Here's Moses up on the mountain. He's meeting with God. He's up there for 40 days. God has given him all these laws. This is where we see um, three weeks ago all the instructions about the tabernacle, the priests, the sacrifices. And remember why. Remember why he did all that in, in chapter 29. It says, they will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt. Here it is again. That I might dwell among them. Remember, I will tabernacle among them. I am the Lord their God, and he repeats it again. So after the, these 40 days up on the mountain, God gives him the tablets, and it says this. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the testimony, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. So Moses now has these two tablets, and we covered all of that. Now what has happened here? Moses has been in the very presence of God. He's got the covenant on, solidified on stone. 
And now they're going to go in and have the promised land and this covenant relationship with God. They've been freed from, from, from Egypt. It's amazing. This, this has been a mountaintop, literally a mountaintop experience for Moses. And when he's in God's presence, what we find is there's holiness on the mountain, but wickedness in the valley. He's been in the very presence of God. And while he's been up there, some things are changing down in the camp. And this is where we're going to pick up. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Exodus chapter 32, and we'll start there. 32, verse 1, and it says this. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. Now, let's just stop for a minute. Aaron gets a really bad rap about what happens in Exodus 32, and rightfully so. But today, because we're on this side of the cross, we're going to give Aaron some grace. And foolishly, we're going to give him the benefit of the doubt over and over again. It, it, it may not be at all true, but we're going to give him the benefit of the doubt. I mean, he's got these pressures. He didn't, you know, he wasn't called to lead them. Moses was. He, he's kind of put into this thing. He's probably not the best leader. These people are pushing in around him, and, and he's got all this stuff going on. Now, they're asking for some gods, and remember that for them, they've been in a culture with foreign gods for 400 years. This is normal for them. They're just, this whole idea of having only one God, this is, that's foreign to them. This is a new concept. So now Moses is up there, and they're asking him, could you make us a God? Because we've had those, our generations and generations and generations. And they go on and say this. As for this, fellow, as this Moses dude, as for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. I mean, I know he's your brother. We don't know him that well. I mean, all of a sudden he shows up in camp and he's going to take us out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was some pretty amazing stuff, but we don't know what kind, we don't know if we can count on him. And on top of that, no offense, Aaron, he's old. I mean, he's like 80 years old. He's up on the mountain. We, he died probably, had a heart attack on the way up. We, we don't know what happened. We're not sure. And I wonder if Aaron, let's give Aaron the benefit of the doubt. He hasn't seen his brother for a while, and he's maybe going, yeah, I'm kind of wondering too. I'm a little curious as to what happened to my little brother as well. Maybe they're right. One little thing we skipped over in this series. Well, we skipped over a lot in this series. But in Exodus chapter 3, and in Exodus chapter 12, we find that God instructs the Israelites before they leave Egypt that they're to go to their Egyptian neighbors and ask to borrow some things, jewelry and gold and silver and clothes and such like that, so that when they leave, they'll take all that with them. And that's what they did. Let's give Aaron the benefit of the doubt here. Maybe in his mind he's thinking, I'm going to ask them for gold, and they're there's no way they're going to give me their gold. I mean, it's theirs. I mean, they got that. They've never had gold. They've been slaves, and they've got gold. There's no way they're going to give me gold. Maybe, maybe he was thinking, I'm going to ask them to give me their gold because I know that I can be off the hook at that point. The problem is, they give him the gold. And this is what it says, verse 4. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Those are kind of some important details because fast forward, and some of you are aware of this, later when he gets reprimanded by his brother, he says, whoa, 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 Moses, I just took all this gold and I threw it in the fire and out popped this calf. 
Okay, that's not the truth. There's great intentionality. When you cast something with molten gold, that means you had to have made the form to cast it into. And then if you shape it and fashion it with a tool, that means you spent some time intentionally fine-tuning the thing. Now, let's give, let's give Aaron the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he says, okay, we know that Yahweh is strong and powerful. Maybe I'll make, maybe I'll make a... a, a um, a calf, like a cow, like a bull, because that will maybe remind them of the strength of Yahweh. May, let's, let's just give them the benefit of the doubt on that one. And remind them of the strength and the power of Yahweh. Here's the only problem. Apis was one of the most important Egyptian gods, deities. And it was a bull deity. And early on, it was seen as a deity of fertility. But we'll give Aaron the benefit of the doubt and say he was trying to help remind them of the strength of Yahweh. But then when he makes this calf, they don't say, praise be Yahweh. They said, they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Aaron didn't say this. The, the people said this. And, and again, given Aaron the benefit of the doubt, he's probably going, uh-oh. Okay, this isn't going right. I've got to get these people back on track before Moses comes back. I've got to get them back fo focused on Yahweh. I've got to get them away from the idolatry. We're not supposed to be doing the idols and, and these gods. There is only one God that brought us out of Egypt, and it's not this calf. So he tries to fix things. Verse 5, and it says this. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So he's like, okay, um, yeah, there's a calf. I'm going to build an altar, and we're going to celebrate Yahweh. We're going to have a festival to Yahweh, to the Lord. Now remember, it's very clear in chapter 20, verse 24, that there was supposed to be no other gods alongside. So while we've been trying to give Aaron the benefit of the doubt, he blows it big time here. He tries to add Yahweh into their pagan rituals and into their idol worship. So he says, tomorrow we will have this celebration to the Lord, trying to get them back focused on Yahweh. So the next day comes. And the people rose early, and they sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. This is wonderful. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that had been instructed to do, to, to celebrate Yahweh. They, they've done that. But that's not where they stop. After the church service, it says, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Now, some of you are saying, oh, like a, an annual church picnic or, or the monthly church potluck, right? I mean, they worship God. I mean, some of you grew up in church. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You're worshiping. You're hearing the sermon. And about three-quarters way through the sermon, up from the fellowship hall comes these wafts of casseroles that are in ovens down in the basement and you know that you're going to get down there and you got to get down there early otherwise the only thing that'll be left is little sandwiches with their crust cut off and then there'll be this little green bean casserole with cream of mushroom soup and onion crumbles all over the top I mean some of you know exactly what I'm talking about that's not what's going on here and they're not doing a three-legged race and playing shuffleboard or softball remember the calf Apis was a fertility god a deity of fertility and what's happening here is a kind way of saying, after they worship Yahweh, they have a drunken orgy. This all, in fact, in verse 25, it says that they, were, they, were, they ran wild and they were out of control. I mean, this wasn't just a little bit of a, a little problem. 
there was a full-on, full-camp, full-involvement, drunken orgy going on in the camp. Now, can I push pause here on something that's really important? Because everyone in the nation seemed to be okay with this. And everyone in the nation seemed to be participating in this. It's like they had a vote. And we live in a world where right and wrong gets more and more fuzzy. When morality gets less and less defined. And I just want to say that even if the whole camp voted and it was passed in legislation and it was a law and it was legal and they all applauded it, it was still wrong in God's eyes, as we'll see here in a minute. And we live in a culture that is increasingly saying there is no absolute truth, there is no right and wrong, do whatever you want. And it doesn't matter what our nation votes, it doesn't matter what our legislators put into law and practice, right and wrong is determined by the word of God. So don't ever just get sucked in and say, well, the majority makes the morality, doesn't it? Not the case. Back to the story. Up on the mountain, Moses has been with God. He spent 40 days there. He has this tablets and it's, it's written in stone now. They're gonna head into the promised land. Everything is wonderful. And God says, there is one little problem. Since you've been up here and the people that you brought out of Egypt, things have kind of gone south, not just kind of. Things have really deteriorated. They have really become corrupt. Verse eight says this. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. To which Moses is probably saying, what? No. God, you said no. And he says, yeah, I know. And they said, they'll obey. I know. Well, how did that happen? happen. And it's no small misdemeanor. God is very, very angry. He said they have become stubborn, they're stiff-necked, and it was so offensive to God that he says in verse 10, he says, now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. I am, this is not working. I'm not going to put up with it. Moses, just go, I'm going to destroy them. And on top of that, and this is where we begin to see the humility of Moses in his finest hour, God says, then I will make you into a great nation. Now listen, Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. If he had any ego at all to hear this, he'd say, what? Really? Like, we're going to start over plan B, and I'm, I'm the guy? Like, you're going to make me, me a great nation? I mean, wow. Think about what they'll say about me. And for generations, small children will sing, Father Moses had many sons. Many sons had Father Moses. This is going to be fantastic. If he had any ego at all, any pride at all, he'd say, okay, God, let's do it. Let's go. I'm your guy. I, I, I'll follow you. If you want to start over, let's go with that. But he doesn't. Moses is a humble man, thinking of others before himself. And at this crisis point, he stands in the gap between a holy, righteous God 
who has great reason for his wrath and a sinful, rebellious people who are deserving of all the wrath of God. And Moses steps into that gap between them and we begin to see how humble and we begin to see his finest hour and we begin to see how he begins to plead with God and begins to pray. It says this. Next slide. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people? He says, Lord, I've, I've led these people just like you asked me to. And, and, and I talk with you face to face like a friend. And, and you know me by name. And you've given me your favor. If I'm still in your, in your favor, then I, I come before you and I'm going to ask this. Why, why would your anger burn against your people? Now, there is one little detail that we skipped over that is kind of funny. I mean, in the midst of a very, very tragic, horrible crisis, it's kind of funny. Because <laughs> look at the contrast here. In verse 7, what God said to Moses then the Lord said to Moses, go down <laughs> because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. God said, Moses, they're yours. You know, you're the one that brought them up. You, you, they're your people. Verse 11, as we just saw, Moses says, uh, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Like, hey, they're not my people, they're your people. Like, I don't want them, they're your people. You're the one, and you're, you're the one, you're the one. It's like, it's like neither one of them wants to claim them. Neither one, and, and some of you who are parents, you, you know what this is like. You know, you come on, hey, do you know what your son did today? Like, well, okay, why is he my son? I mean, you carried him for nine months. He's your son. You, you influenced him before he was ever born. So that whole thing, neither one of them want to claim them. It's your people. No, it's your people. And there's all of this pain in, 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 uh, in the valley as they are going through all this. So Moses continues, continues to plead on the behalf of the people. And he begins to, to focus very boldly on God. And he says, you know, Yahweh, if you do this, do you want Egypt to see that? That you pulled them out of Egypt just to destroy them? You... you in a way, Egypt then wins. Do you want that? And then he gets even more bold in his prayer. Goes on and he says this. Turn from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. And then he says, remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. I don't know if you're familiar with scripture, but anything seem a little bit different in that phrase? Over and over and over again, you hear the phrase, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Moses changes it here, and this is by design. Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Abraham was the one that God had originally made the covenant with. He would be the father of a great nation. And then Abraham has Ishmael, but he's not the son of the covenant. That's Hagar's son. And he has Isaac, the son of of the covenant. And Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. And Jacob wrestles with God and is given the name Israel, and his 12 sons become the 12 tribes. And he's just reminding him over and over again, remember your covenant promise and commitment to Abraham, 
Isaac, and Israel. And then he goes on. To whom you swore by your own self. I mean, there is great boldness here on his part. God, you swore by your own self. <laughs> Some of you remember in the 70s. I mean, I know this is way back there. But in the 70s, there was a, a movie um, called Oh God. And George Burns uh, was was God. And he's on trial and they, they make him take the oath and he says, I tell the truth, so help me me. Because, right, okay, never mind. So he says, hey, listen, you're the one that swore by yourself. You swore to, swore to God. You swore to yourself. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and I will give your descendants all this land. I promise them and it will be in their inheritance forever. Forever. And Moses just reminds him, God, don't forget this is a covenant, not a contract. You've entered into a relationship with these people. This isn't a, a business transaction. You're going to be their God. They're going to be your people. You promised that they would do this and you would do that and, and that, that you were going to bless them and give them this land. And he tells them this in, in great boldness as he goes through all this. And God says, okay, okay, I won't destroy them. And so Moses goes back down, goes down the mountain, and he has the tablets. He takes uh, Joshua with him as they're going down. Joshua hears something coming out of the camp. And he says, Moses, it sounds like there's war going on. And Moses says, this is not the sound of victory, and it's not the sound of defeat. What you're hearing is the sound of singing. Now Moses has heard about this from God, He's hearing it on his own right now. But then something happens. He's heard about it. He's told God, don't, you know, don't, don't destroy them. He's hearing it as he's coming closer to the camp. But then in verse 19, it says this. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned. He had heard what was going on. He had even heard it going on. But when he saw the immorality the degradation, the, the rebellion, the debauchery. It, there was a visceral reaction, sick to his stomach, couldn't handle this. His, he went from zero to 100, right with one to, to see, could not believe what's going on in the camp. And his anger just burned, righteous anger. And his response, he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. Was that just an angry response? Was that just a reaction? Partly. But what also was going on here was an illustration. Re remember, images and metaphors and, and pictures, you see that all the way through. He takes these tablets that represents the covenant and he shatters them as if to show them what you are doing right now has shattered the relationship. It's shattered the covenant that God had with us. We agreed to it. You agreed to it. And what I did with these tablets, you've done on a cosmic level with Yahweh. I will say this. Because God next time makes him carve out his own stones. So God, while I think his anger was fully justified, maybe what he did wasn't exactly what God had in mind. I don't know. But I do know this, that sometimes we as Christians can respond in a way that is not appropriate, that righteous anger 
does not justify unrighteous actions. Like blowing up abortion clinics. Are you kidding me? Saying hateful things and, and slandering people and, and gossiping. Are you kidding me? We should have righteous anger against things that are wrong. But we should not destroy the character of Christ and what God is doing in our lives and in this world and the witness in how we react. There are times when we have to have strong reactions, but not unrighteous reactions and actions. And so Moses does this and goes on. <clears throat> Excuse me. As he goes into the camp, he destroys the idol. He destroys the calf. Visual to say, your God can't even defend himself against an 80-year-old man. I can destroy this thing that you are trying to worship. He destroys it, burns it, and he makes them consume it so that the next day it exits their body. He says, that's what your false gods are. They're a pile of dung. He reprimands Aaron sharply, which he deserved. He cleanses the camp of those who are still rebellious, and he appoints the Levites as the priestly tribe. And then the next day, this is what happens. Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps, perhaps I can make atonement for your sins. What you've done is wrong. You cannot imagine how it has shattered this relationship. And maybe, just maybe, I can go make atonement for your sins. They had been there with the Passover. They understood this thing of something covering over their sin, the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. He had experienced this instructions about the tabernacle, about the priests, about the sacrifice. And he's thinking, maybe, maybe, just maybe, maybe God would be merciful here. And he says, I'll go and perhaps I can make atonement, atonement to cover. We'll cover that more next week. He goes on and says, so Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. And I, and I can imagine Moses saying, you were right. I never should have stopped you in the first place. When I saw what you knew was going on, I mean, you told me about it, but I didn't. when I saw it, I wanted to destroy them. I, I wish I would have never talked you off that ledge, God. I wish you would have destroyed them. We could have started all over. I'd be the new father of a great nation. We could have done all that. You could almost hear Moses saying, in fact, it's not too late if you want to change your mind. But this is where we see the humility, the humility of Moses in his finest hour. He says, these people, they've sinned greatly against you. And then he goes on, but now, please, forgive their sin. Wait a second. Moses, these are the people you don't even like half the time. You didn't even want to lead them out. You didn't even want to be a part of this. And they grumble and complain against you. And they're rebellious and stubborn against God. And you're standing in the gap and you're coming to bat for them and you're asking God to forgive their sins. And notice he stops mid-sentence. You notice there's a dash there. Please forgive their sin. Kind of almost like, not sure how God's going to take this. And then what you see in the next 
half a verse is what makes me say, wow, I had no idea the depth of the humility and the character of Moses. God, please, if you would, please forgive their sins. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. Wait, 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 wait. Moses, are you saying what I think you're saying? You remember in verse 10, God said, I will destroy them and save you, Moses. And Moses, in his humility, says, God, you are justified. You are righteous. You are holy. Your justice requires that there be some punishment. You said you would destroy them and save me. I'm asking, would you destroy me and save them? Like, like God, is it possible that one person could die to cover over the sins of all the people? Does that sound vaguely familiar at all? That Moses is offering himself as a spiritual substitute. That he wants to be the one to take their place, to take their punishment. You know what we've seen all summer long? Again and again and again. That Moses and the stories throughout Exodus, they all point to Jesus. And here it is again, this foreshadowing, this, this picture of what Jesus would do. What Moses is doing on the mountain. Does that sound vaguely familiar like, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do? Does it sound a little bit like Jesus at all? Can I just say, if this sounds a little bit like Jesus, wait until next week. Don't miss next week. I mean, wow. It's going to be, wow. Okay. Now, this whole concept we see again in the New Testament. And the Apostle Paul, who had been very familiar with the Pentateuch, would have been very familiar with this story, says something very similar in Romans chapter 9. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Paul says the same thing. For Paul, though, he's got a bit of a safety net. Jesus has already done this. He knows he doesn't have to. Moses didn't know that. Moses is stepping out there with no safety net. God, you can take my life. And again, it all points to Jesus. In Romans chapter 5, we read these words. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we, in our rebellion, in our hard hearts, in our stubbornness, in our debauchery, in our disobedience, while we were still in the valley of wickedness, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It all points to Jesus again. All right, so back to the story, and now we're gonna just dip into chapter 33. I, I wish we had time to go into this more. We don't. A little bit into chapter 33. God says, okay, Okay, I'm not going to destroy them, but I am going to punish them. Exodus 33, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, 
leave this place, you and the people you, he's still, still saying they're your people, the people you brought up out of Egypt and go up to the land I promised. You, you got me on that one. I, I swore on myself that I, would, I, I promised it. I'm good for it. The promise on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and look, and Jacob, I'm not going to the Israel part right now, saying, I will give it to you and your descendants. Okay, so go ahead and take the land. In fact, the next verse, he says, I'll even send an angel ahead of you so that you don't even have to fight battles. Like you're gonna have military victory when you go in. And then verse three, he says, you're gonna go up to the land that is flowing with milk and honey. He says, what's not to love about this? I told him, I would give him the promised land, I will. You go up there, the land is yours, my angel will give you military victory. You'll have your own land. You'll have victory. And there'll be prosperity. They're just flowing with milk and honey. What's not to like? You can have it all. It's going to be great. But, but I will not go with you because you are stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. I'm not going to go. You, you can have all that I said you would have, all that and more, abundance beyond what you could ever imagine, I'm not going to go with you. Now we're going to have to jump ahead. But Moses, again, has this incredibly bold prayer. He says, says God, I, I've led them. You know, I've, I've found favor in your sight. Verse 13, he says this. If you are pleased with me, because I know you're not pleased with them. I know that, nor should you be the way they've been acting. But if you're pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Like God, if I can ask of anything, I don't want the promised land. I don't want a new nation built under my name. I don't want the military victories. I don't want all the prosperity. I don't want the land flowing with milk and honey and all of that. God, I want you. I, I, I want you. Wow, and, and. He doesn't stop there because he's not just about himself. He says, and. Remember that this nation is your people. And what, what, when I read that and saw what Moses had done, how he had prayed, how selfless he was, the courage he had, the humility he had, I mean, I, I got to admit, this is like his finest. I mean, the party in the Red Sea was amazing. The, the plagues in Egypt were amazing. The, the staff and the, the leprosy hand and, and, and the, the frogs and the blood. It's amazing stuff. You know, water out of a rock and all of these things. But what he does here is so much deeper, so much more significant. When God says, you can have all the blessings, but I'm not going to go with you. And Moses says, you know what? I don't want that. Then he goes on and he says this. Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. God, if you're not gonna go with us, we're not going. And here is one of the incredible takeaways from this interaction 
and it's this. It's for every single one of us. Seek the presence of God more than the blessings from God. Seek the presence of God more than the blessings from God. You know that offer that God made to him in Israel? Take the land, have the military victories, get all the land flowing with milk and honey. Most of us would say, sounds good, but I'm not going. Good enough, I've got the blessings. I think most Americans would say, if they had the option, I'll just take all the health, the wealth, the prosperity, the happiness, and if I don't get God, no big deal, I've got this. Moses would say, you've sold it all out. Seek the presence of God more the bless, than the blessings from God. Can I, can I bring it? I know, I know I've gone longer than Pastor Brian. Can I bring it home now for us? Because right now in this season that we're in, and it's a weird season for all of us, and, and it's not fun for any of us, I don't think. But what are the things that we pray about? You know, that, that this would get back to normal, that it'd all get fixed, we could get our life back, that we could have it the way it once was. My friend Mike Woodruff, some of you know Mike Woodruff. He used to be here in Bellingham, ran the Inn Ministries. He's a pastor north of Chicago now. And he puts out a, a digital newsletter every single week. And this week, uh, or last week in his digital newsletter, he posed a question, and I want us to wrestle with this question. He said this, what do you spend more time wanting? A closer walk with Christ or your old life back? That can be a very troubling question. In this season, what do you think about? If you pray, pray about, wonder about, wish for, long for, more. A closer walk with Christ or your old life back the way it once was. And Moses says, seek the presence of God more than just the blessings from God. What if? What if we followed Moses? What if we engaged in true humility of knowing who God is and knowing who we are? What if we were humble in that we thought and con were more concerned about others than our own rights? How, I'm so sick of everyone talking about their rights. Why can't we be humble and say, it's not about me, but to humbly think of others as more important than ourselves? What if we became people who stood in the gap like Moses did, praying for those, those who are far from God, praying for our politicians, praying for our world, and, and not just for a cure, yes, a cure or a, a whatever, but, but praying that they would find God. And what if we said, God, can I know you better? What if we would spend more time in the word? What if we spend more time in prayer? What if we spent more time standing in the gap? What if? If we did that, then I would say, this could be our finest hour. This season that everyone is so upset and complaining about could be our finest hour. Would you be willing to humbly seek God, stand in the gap, and say, Father, I want to know you more in these days. It will be your finest hour.